Hey, welcome. Disability Law Show. Good to have you back with us. We are uh, smashing the myths and misconceptions about disability law and no one better to do it than Tamara Gopian, uh, partner, San Fierro, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can reach out to Tamar anytime, by the way. Got a great team behind her. Great firm across the country, outside of Quebec. There is help for you, whether you're in Ontario or BC or Alberta, just uh, Go to the website, that would be disabilityrights.ca. Send an email along, help at disabilityrights.ca. We're going to get a pile of those today. And the phone number, anytime as well, 1-855-821-5900. They are piling up. We're going to get to them here in just a moment uh, tomorrow. Good to talk to you again, pal. You got a, a week that was a, a matter that you've been dealing with. Tell me about it. Absolutely. So I've been chatting actually with a couple of clients this week and a few issues have come up that I wanted to start off talking about uh, on the top of our show. But it was interesting what you said about us having, you know, presence sort of across the country. And I was joking with a client that I'm sort of omnipotent, I think is the word, <laughs> where I sort of am everywhere other than just Ontario. I, uh, yes, we do practice in Alberta and BC and you know, look, it's, I think it's really positive that we have such a far reaching uh, presence because mm, totally. these, dis yeah, these disability insurers, you know, they are national companies, sometimes, uh, you know, North American companies or international companies. And so the concepts of disability litigation and disability law is fairly, you know, consistent across the country. And the approach by disability uh, insurers is definitely consistent, same training, same approach. You know, they're looking to cut off claims if they can, and hope that people just sort of walk away from their rights. Yeah. And the response from judges and courts is also somewhat consistent, John. And so you'd be surprised how consistently the few decisions that come actually before the courts, because disability litigation doesn't often go through to, to a trial. And the reason for that is because judges don't like insurance companies mm -hmm. and they don't like insurance companies who continue to fight the disability claimant for their benefits when it's otherwise legitimate. And so there have been very uh, favorable decisions that have been made, certainly in British Columbia and, and more recently in Ontario that favor the claimants. And so if you're listening to our shows and you're thinking, gosh, this just feels like a David and Goliath kind of situation, uh, it's it's often not. And you'd be amazed that it's it's not. The cards are not necessarily stacked against you, even though I absolutely understand and sympathize that people feel this way when they've got this overwhelming, uh, you know, health conditions that they've got to navigate. And on top of everything else, now the disability insurer has cut off their claim. Yeah. But I, I digress a little bit because in the context of this, I wanted to speak about someone that I was speaking with this week that was sharing with me her specific situation where she was dealing with a lot of um, stress, you know, toxicity at work, a variety of issues in the work setting that ultimately led her to take a stress leave from work. And she's getting a lot of trouble from the disability insurer on, you know, ongoing approval of benefits. And so in that context, I want to talk about it in a broader scale, John, because this is happening a lot. People are dealing with a whole host of issues. You know, COVID is still a thing, you know, yep. remote work, back to work, navigating all of this stuff. Um, certainly in the health sector, shortages of staff that, you know, it's just pervasive. So you can see that it's very common to have issues in the work setting that's, that really impacts someone's health and well-being. And ultimately, you know, a doctor will say, look, you need some time off. 
The challenge, though, is, is that disability insurers don't like to get involved in situations like this, John. They actually don't want to approve claims that are born in a workplace setting issue. They will take the position that, well, you can just find yourself a different job and that's fine. And you're not totally disabled from your own occupation. They'll argue that the work setting itself really doesn't have a lot to do with it. And so in the context of this one that I was speaking with this week, she's sort of saying to me, well, Tamara, but but my doctor's saying that I shouldn't be working. Obviously, I can't go back to my work setting. You know, it's, it's I can't even think about really working in any setting, really. Uh, so what do I do in a situation like this? And so I, I really had a deep dive with her about treatment. Treatment is something that has a, a positive effect on a whole host of levels. Number one, obviously, it helps the claimant. And number two, it creates that quote-unquote paper trail that, that these adjusters typically want to see and find and look at in order to approve benefits. And so I see a lot of situations where the family doctor saying, yeah, I'm just dealing with this and I'm, I'm recommending that my patient not return back to work and they're going to be off for another you know, two weeks, two months, whatever it sure. is, due to health reasons, quote-unquote, right? They don't provide any details on those health reasons. And certainly for the employer, that's fine. One minor note is fine. But for the disability insurer, the details are very important. And referrals for treatment or encouraging a patient to get uh, accessing other treatment, such as mental health supports, by the way, John, is what I'm getting at, really, really important. Now, I know that it can be really difficult to see a psychiatrist in this province, to see a psychologist or pay for that treatment. But there are actually other supports, counseling, social workers, a whole host of things that um, either are government funded or ha- are uh, you know free. Um, and I'm just, I, the conversation I was having with this particular individual was, look, you've got to try and pursue some of these avenues because not only does it lend credibility that your disability is something that's you know disabling you and not able to, to move forward to go back to work, but it's also not just because of the work setting, right? She'd been out of the work setting, John, for several months, still having these symptoms, still having these conditions. And to have the insurance company turn around and say, hey, you know what? You should be going back to that work setting, which is what set her off on these health challenges in the first place, just doesn't make sense. And I know it's not going to hold water, John, if I were to get involved and we're going to challenge this ability insurer. All of that is definitely important. But when people come to me, I want them to have some immediacy to the advice that I give. And and some of it has to do just very practically with the reality that these disability policies have an appropriate treatment requirement. And so the insurer might be dressing up a decline that otherwise is something that they're looking for. They're looking to see that you're trying to recover, trying to access all of the things that you should be doing to get better in terms of your health. And they've embedded that right into the disability policy as a requirement before they will release that monthly benefit. So look, it's not a quick fix. It's not an easy answer, but it's something that I wanted to put out there because I think that there's a bit of a missing link sometimes when you know a doctor will say, off for work stress, right? It's too easy. When I see that right away, I'm assuming that disability insurer is either going to resist approving the claim or may approve it for a short period of time and then deny it thereafter. And so I think part of unlocking that mystery is really trying to access sort of the appropriate treatment requirements and, you know, getting the the health needs that are required out there in a situation like this. 
It's a, uh, you know, it could be a tough thing to, to navigate. And, you know, we often talk about it, and you mentioned off the off the top of your of your opening uh, statement there, Tamar, that, you know, the David and Goliath situation, even if it is viewed as that, we know who won that battle, right? It was a little guy, and that's the person on the, uh, the abusive end of what happens with some of these insurance companies. So, I mean, moral of the story, don't ever hesitate to reach out to uh, Tamar and her team and, and get them working for you. At least mm-hmm. have that conversation off the top because uh, just the information is key, which is you know, the main reason why I've been doing these shows all these years. But uh, to do that, one 855 821 help at uh is the way you go. You want to get into some emails? You got something else to uh, to throw at us, pal? Yeah, let's, start, let's launch into some emails. Cool. I think they're always helpful. Yeah, Garth is the uh, first one up, says, hey, Tamar, love the show. Uh, my brother has been receiving disability benefits for five years. He struggles with schizoaffective disorder, autism, and agoraphobia, spends most of his time in his room, and rarely leaves our apartment. Even going to a psychiatrist for treatment is a struggle, as is getting his medication. The pandemic made things much worse, and even with things loosening up, hasn't helped. To make matters worse, he just found out that the insurance company is going to cut him off because they're saying his symptoms aren't severe enough to prevent him from working in a warehouse. This was the job he was doing before he went on medical leave. It seems very odd to me that this is happening all of a sudden. They've been paying him for so long and nothing's changed. If anything, he's worse now than he was before. Why are they doing this? Gosh, Garth, why are they doing this? Because... They want to save the dollars. That, that's really what yeah. it comes down to. John, I mean, if there's an opportunity for these disability insurers to close out these claims and not pay them until they're, the individual turns 65 years old, which is usually the expiry of most of these disability policies, then they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And I think what's what's really frustrating to me when I hear this particular email is the length of time for which his brother has been on claim, John. And what the adjuster may not know, but I'm certain their lawyers at the insurance company know, because I know that that is a huge hurdle for the disability insured to overcome if a judge were ever to look at this situation. Because not only is Garth's brother most likely past that two-year mark of benefits, he says he's been on claim for five years. So yeah. there's that. So there's been an acknowledgement for a fairly significant period of time by the disability insurer that Garth's brother is in fact disabled totally, not able to work in any work setting, so any occupation. And the onus is actually on the disability insurer to demonstrate that in fact the health is better now such that Garth's brother can work in this warehouse setting, so, so he describes. And that it's an, a level of earnings that would be at least equal to the LTD benefit. Mm-hmm. So some policies will say, look, it's gainful occupation or a commensurate wage. These are the terms that we use in the disability world to talk about that threshold of alternative earnings. And what's odd to me is that the insurance company is actually saying he, go, he can go back to his own occupation. Right. Well, they've already approved and paid that. So again, <laughs> that legal onus, that the fact that the insurance company is going reverting back to an initial analysis where they had already agreed and approved and paid on that basis tells me something's amiss. And it tells me that perhaps there maybe could there not be enough sufficient medical information to the insurance company? I don't know. I mean, I, I think the situation is, in, uh, you know, is intriguing, most certainly from a, you know, disability law perspective. But more practically, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. And it's actually prejudicial that the insurer, after all this time, would take that step of actually cutting him off. 
So if I'm Garth, here's what I would like. Number one, you want to make sure you get in writing from the insurance company what it is that they're saying about cutting off the claim. Number two, if there hasn't been a recent report from the primary psychiatrist or treating psychologist or both or the family doctor about all of the ongoing symptoms, put that together, get that over to the insurance company ASAP. I think those two factors are really, really important. And then if the insurance company has medical information in hand that they need to consider that should change their view of cutting off the claim and they still maintain the denial of benefits, they've got a massive, massive problem here. And it's certainly one that I would not hesitate taking on as a disability legal claim because we can then challenge them meaningfully, not the claims adjuster, but their lawyers right. about this situation and the test they'll have to meet should they actually you know, get inside a courtroom and have to justify what they've done here to Garth's brother. Garth, I'm sure that answer helped immensely, but you can always reach out beyond the email that you just sent. Appreciate that, by the way, for uh, for contacting us here on the show today. Uh, you do so by going to one 821 5900 and uh, disabilityrights.ca is the uh, firm website that'll lead you there too, Garth. And for you as well, as we continue here, the Disability Law Show, lots more coming up. Stand by. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Thanks for hanging in. John Scholes here along with Tamar Agopian. Reach out to Tamar and her team. They're always ready to just to have that you know, confidential chat anytime you would like to discuss your matter, any questions uh, for yourself or possibly for a friend or colleague who's just a little bashful and shy, doesn't know where to turn, use the number one 821 5900 There's also another place you can go called mydisabilityquestions.com. It's just like it sounds. You can ask your questions there freely and anonymously, searchable database, so your question might already be there by someone else. You can just read it and uh, click off your browser and you're done. If not, leave your question there at mydisabilityquestions.com. It'll uh, it'll get answered. You know, tomorrow it's, it's often a question: if someone returns to work, do their disability benefits end right away? Is there some lag, and and can they get back on them if they need to? Yeah, really good question. And so, yes, if you return back to work, theoretically, your disability benefits will end. But there is some kind of an overlap, gray time frame. Okay, and so let me explain that. The Typical return to work scenario, John, involves some kind of gradual return. Usually it'll be like a testing of the waters. Someone might start for a couple hours a week and then they will increase to a couple hours a day and then eventually assume full-time duties and work. And in fact, if anyone's listening and they're thinking about a return to work plan, I'd very much encourage having your doctor endorse something more gradual so you can see, you know, especially if you've been away from work for a long period of time, you want to wait and see how things progress. And I do actually have a couple of clients who managed to return to work. They actually managed to return full time for a period of oh. time and then, you know, have found that they can't sustain, you know, the work environment and their health and have gone on off, got, gotten off work again and with the support of their doctors. Uh, one gentleman in particular went through this twice. So this is his second return to work attempt. And so what's interesting in his situation, and I think what I want to get out there for our listeners is there will be an overlapping period where you're getting income from your employer for the hours and days that you're working. And you're going to get a top up, so to speak, disability benefit from your disability insurer during that graduated return to work period of time. So let's say it's four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, what have you, there's going to be a combination of payments. And what's less clear is how do they come up with that number? So yeah. John, each policy has a different calculation on what we call either rehab earnings or return to work earnings. 
And that calculation sometimes is very odd because it takes into consideration some portion of work. Sometimes it's a percentage, sometimes it's an amount. Uh, And so if you're going through this process, you want to ask your adjuster, hey guys, how are you calculating this? I want a a written accounting of how are you calculating my benefit and what's happening with my long-term disability benefit. And when is it actually expected to end so that you know, okay, now I'm done. This is when my long-term claim ended so that this is when I start you know, getting my full earnings, ideally. And also so that you know when that recurrence window is. Because to your point, John, you said, hey, can someone get back on claim? Yes, you can get back on claim. If your health prevents you from working, you absolutely are still entitled to disability benefits. I mean, it's tougher much, much tougher. Insurance companies got you off the books. They don't want you back on the books. So it's not an ideal setting, right? Yeah. And so you don't want to try this unless you've got clear endorsement from your doctor or your doctors to try the return to work. But strictly to the question of compensation, most disability policies actually have a fairly consistent window of time in which you can trigger this recurrence. It's usually six months. And it's six months from the end of a prior claim and the start of a subsequent claim. So the end date of disability benefits becomes really, really important so that you can understand, okay, here's my window. So if I'm sort of sick and unwell and can't work again, this is the window in which I can make a claim back to the insurance company that I should be getting my full LTD benefits kicked up once more. So again, usually a six-month window. The other part of it is, is that the medical support in this window is critical critical. I can't say this enough. You want to have this very well documented. Not only, you know, I say keep a journal, keep a log, see how you're doing every day during the graduated return and so on, but also, you know, ensuring that your doctors are well aware that, hey, look, my symptoms are back up again, or this is what's happening. I can't sit for this long, or I can't concentrate. Whatever the issues are, have those documented on your end and as well with your doctors so that it's a medical support for the further work stoppage, as opposed to, hey, you know what, I just don't like working here anymore. I'm just going to stop working. That's not going to fly with a disability insurer. And so when you've got that medical support, that's in fact what you submit to the disability insurer for your re- recurrence claim. You actually technically don't even need all the forms. You just say, hey, here's some further medical information. I'm activating recurrence. What say you about my recurrence claim? And so they will review that medical information and make a determination or should whether or not your LTD benefits should start back up. And it's important to get all of this in writing, of course, because as I said, sometimes you can get a lot of resistance from the disability insurer on getting back on because there's no longer, for a whole host of reasons, John, but one of them is because there's no longer a qualifying period or an elimination period, what we call. It's a the, the whole period that most people have to go through before long-term disability benefits start being paid. Usually it's four to six months. Usually it lines up with how long you get short-term disability benefits. And so in a recurrent situation, you don't have to wait the four or six months to get those benefits. They should be starting right back up right. again when there's evidence medically that you remain totally disabled and unable to work as a result of your health issues. You know, you said though, when you, you know, if, if it's at the point where you can try going back to work, there could be, you know, you call it some top up or some overlap of benefits uh, when you actually return to work. Are they going to want to claw that back? 
So yes and no, that's what I was saying to you about the calculation, right? So some insurers will calculate it that way. They'll say, hey, you know, you're earning X dollars. And so we're going to take a dollar for dollar reduction from what you're earning against what we pay you for long term. Other insurers will take a different approach and they'll say, you know, it's, it's called a rehab earnings calculation. If you're earning, if you're working at a certain percentage, we're going to pay you the balance by way of a long-term disability benefit. So it won't be your full LTD benefit, but it also won't be a dollar for dollar deduction or reduction for the earnings that you're getting. So this calculation, again, varies from insurer to insurer, but it also varies depending on what your level or capacity of work is. And it actually brings to mind, John, I've actually got an ongoing legal claim right now for a client I'm going to protect her privilege and her confidentiality, but I will say generally she has had a reduced or partial work capacity for a long period of time. Like I want to say a couple of years and it's very clear, tried and tested and true with her doctors and her employer that she cannot increase her work hours. And if she does, her symptoms become overwhelming and she's back off work again completely. So they, the, and the insurer was involved in this calibration of what is the appropriate level of work. So, for a period of time, they accepted that they were going to top her up for the remaining period of time under the policy. It's all contractual. And they did that. Then they got tired of it. <laughs> they decided to cut <laughs> off the claim. I swear to you, John, I'm not, oh, yeah. you know, I know it sounds humorous, but it's just bonkers. And so they decided to cut off the claim on, on a hope and a prayer that she should have been working basically double the level that she was actually working after they had accepted that this was the clear capacity or barrier for, you know, increasing her hours. So no, no surprise there. She's retained us. We've started a legal claim and I've had this discussion with a disability insurer. And guess what? The lawyer's like, yeah, tomorrow, I think we need to resolve this. Oh no. Like you think, no, but this is a good thing, John. This is a good thing for listeners to know, right? Is that, you know, just because you're getting this resistance from the disability insurer doesn't mean that resistance is still there when we get involved. There's a lot of traction that we get when we start that legal claim. And I know it seems counterintuitive. Hey, work with the insurer. They've paid me all this time. What's happening? So on and so forth. But don't hesitate. And really, at the end of the day, all I want to do is give information out there. And then people can make their absolutely make their own choices about what they want to do. But I can tell people that I have seen a very good degree of success even when it's not so quote unquote cut and dry, it's not complete total disability. There is this partial work capacity. It's validated by the doctors. The insurance company accepted it and they are owing a top up payment for the rest of this policy until she turns right. 65. And that is what we're pursuing against the disability insurer. You know, it's funny too, because that whole thing, oh, start a legal claim, you know, get their lawyers involved, that 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 can scare people away. But it's actually, to your point, yeah. it's better because an adjuster only has so much knowledge, they can only make so many moves. Exactly. Now, if you're right now, if you if you involve their legal department, now it's lawyer versus lawyer. Now you guys both speak the same language. They know they want to get this thing resolved. So it's actually advantageous, is it not, when it gets to the legal claiming, you guys get involved because then their lawyers get involved. A lot of them, maybe, have worked both sides before. So they're going to have a more clear view of what should be done, right? Absolutely. And I can't say absolutely enough. And I know I say it a lot, but it's 100% true. (laughs) It's 100% true. We are now talking the same language. The claims adjusters do not have the training or understanding of what courts will do in these kinds of disability litigation situations. 
frankly, many of them, John, don't even really understand what contract law or policy interpretation really is. Okay. Uh, and so when you've got disability lawyers talking to one another about these kinds of issues, we know where they will land. We know where the mm -hmm. tension points are. We know what a court may or may not accept. And it's a massive advantage for our clients, massive, because not only do we have that knowledge base, we also have relationships with these other lawyers. They know us and they know we're not, you know, gun shy. We will move forward with our legal claims if we need to. We have, all of us have trial experience, you know, this kind of thing. So it comes with some gravitas. And I, I know that can seem very odd to people listening, thinking, gosh, why do I have to do all of this? But I'm telling you, it really does alleviate a bit of that stress and anxiety, right? It takes away this element of people having to deal with these adjusters who don't understand, who don't get it, whose primary goal is to cut off their claim. Now it becomes my problem. Those calls end, the letters end. I will deal with all of this on behalf of my clients. And we deal with it really effectively, very efficiently. Sometimes it takes a matter of months and we've got the case resolved, John. Yeah, you said, you know, why do I have to do deal with all this? Well, no, no, at that point, you're not dealing with anything because it's radio silence for the client, which is that that sometimes brings them half the relief is knowing that they don't have to deal with these phone calls and letters from the company anymore, the insurance company, because you guys have stepped in and taken over so they can do what they should have been doing all along. And that is work uh, at getting better and hopefully getting back to work and getting off claim for sure. So yes. to your point, it's a, it's a plus all the way around. we got lots more to go here. I want to get into an email from Nick. He just sent it over. Um, you can do that anytime. It might appear in a future show, possibly help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we use. And uh, I mentioned before a website called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a great forum for you to ask questions. They get read by Tamar and her team. It's free. It's anonymous, as is ltdfaq.ca. That is simply a website constructed very basically to answer uh, quick and uh, concise questions about LTD. They're, they're broken down into memos with drop-down menus, super easy to read, no legalese. It's all simple English, ltdfaq.ca. And then finally, the phone number, of course, one 821 5900 Take a short break. More coming up. This is the Disability Law Show. All right. Welcome back. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging in here. Disability Law Show. We're good to have you back on. John Scholes and my co-host always, Tamar Agopian, answering all the tough questions that uh, you send us through email or otherwise. Nick has got one uh, precisely. He says, my wife unexpectedly suffered a stroke about a year ago. She already had some health issues, but managed to work. Now she has partial paralysis and really struggles with doing even routine things. Her neurologist has already advised her, uh, advised that her condition is permanent and she will not be able to work. The insurance company knows this and asked her to apply for CPP disability. We did it and got retroactive, uh, retroactive payment of $15,000 from the government. The insurance company says we have to pay them this money, and if we don't, they're going to cut off my wife's disability benefits. I feel like the insurance company tricked us. I feel stuck because we use the money to pay our bills. Do we have any options here? Well, Such a tough situation. Yeah, such a tough situation, Nick. But yep. look, I'm glad you reached out. This is key because there's some very important elements in your email that I want our listeners to understand. Number one, if the disability insurer is asking you to apply for CPP disability benefits, usually that's a pretty good sign that they think your claim's going to go on for a bit. Not always. There's one insurer that does it sort of routinely after about a year on claim, but most of the others will only do so if they expect that this is going to be a quote-unquote long-duration type disability claim. So one that will likely go beyond that initial own occupation period, which typically is that two-year mark. So number one, 
the the fact that they've even just suggested to apply, I think is is a sign of where their head's at about Nick's wife's situation. Not surprising, right, John, given what yep. he's described with fairly significant health issues. Number two, the disability policy does say that the insurance company gets a credit for these other sources of income that you might come into. So disability benefits from the government, the CPP disability is the number one thing that the disability insurer is looking for a credit for. And it's actually contractual. So I absolutely understand Nick's frustration. Hey, they told us to apply. Now we get this money. Now we got to pay it back to the insurance company. I know. And it's just poor adjusting. And it does expose the insurance company to a potential, you know, bad faith type claim if they weren't sufficiently transparent with Nick and his wife, John, about how this was going to work. They have to tell people, hey, you're going to apply for CPP. And if you get it, we get a credit for that. So bear that in mind when you're applying and receiving these funds from the government. And so I, I'm really intrigued by the situation because I'm actually wondering if there's more to it. I suspect there is, that there was probably some back and forth with the adjuster about whether or not to time the CPP disability application at the time that they did and what was in fact communicated to them about this retro payment. Because what the government will do their test, John, is if someone has a severe and prolonged disability, then they will qualify for CPP disability. That That's benefit right. could be, you know, usually an average of about $1,000 a month, anywhere between 1000 to about $1,450 a month, give or take. And they will look to see how far back your disability claim went. So, I suspect if Nick's wife got about, what does he say, $15,000, yep. if it's even 1000 bucks a month, it means they went back probably retroactively to about 15 months of benefits. And they can do that. That's the maximum period, actually, that they will go back uh, in time. That's the government, that is, to acknowledge and accept that this is the date where you became disabled in a severe and prolonged way, and here are your monthly disability benefits. So- the long and short of it is, is that unfortunately the disability insurer is entitled to some transparency once you are approved. They are entitled to this money back. Unfortunately, if it overlaps for a period that you've already received disability benefits. I think what's concerning me a little more is the fact that the insurance company is now using this as a reason to decline an otherwise legitimate claim. That's what's offside to me in this scenario more so than these technical requirements of the money being paid back. Because, yes, there's a retroactive repayment requirement for sure, but there still remains a fundamental basis that if Nick's wife remains totally disabled, John, the LTD benefit must continue. And so the fact that the insurer is using this odd exchange between themselves and Nick and his wife as a reason to decline the claim, that's where I really have a lot of trouble. And so, yes, there are some options. I know it can be daunting if you've got this mass, massive retro payment that's owing back to the insurer. But I want to know, you know, how young is Nick's wife? I suspect relatively young. And if there's a, still even a number of years left on the policy to be paid, then then it may be a wash and then some, right? So even if the insurance company gets their 15 grand back, if your LTD benefit is anywhere between, you know, $25 to $3,500 a month, there's more money there that the insurance company yep. owes Nick and his wife. And that's the important part. If the doctors are still recommending that she's totally disabled, now she's CPP approved on top of everything else. 
then there's a whole whack of dough that the insurer actually still owes Nick and his wife, his wife in particular. And I do think it's a good breeding ground for a legal claim. So what I'm going to do is reach out to Nick, get a call going and delve into the medical information and the communications between himself, his wife and the adjuster. And I'm going to suggest that I think this is a good breeding ground for a legal claim. Yeah, it's... It's uh, it's not not necessarily doom and gloom having that CPP. In fact, it could be a pretty uh, beneficial safety net. But you know, once CP disability is approved and considering the test to qualify, will the approval at least kind of make the LTD insurer gun shy? Will it deter them from cutting off someone's benefits? Because to your point, tougher and more onerous test to be on CPP, right? It is. It is because think of the words, right? Severe and prolonged. Prolonged. That's, those yeah. are the yeah. Those are the government's words. The words that most disability policies used it use is total disability of by virtue of an illness that prevents you from working. So the the words are softer, I would say. Um, you know, it's interesting. It brings to mind. So so the short answer is yes, John. It should theoretically deter insurance companies from cutting off claims. But I, I recently came across a lawyer who who argued with me about the fact that oh, just you know, CPP just is approving everyone. They were you know audited and. You know, they, the, you know, they're the vetting of the government's, um, you know, disability plan is nowhere near as rigorous as the disability insurer. And this is why it's not compelling if someone is approved for CPP disability. I mean, I think that's just creative arguments. Uh, I think at the end of the day, when you look strictly at the words, and that is what disability policies are, they are words in a contract. Uh, I think a court would much prefer a scenario where a claimant is already CPP approved and favor that scenario over um, the, the insurance company suggesting that, you know, they be cut off or they're not totally disabled. So in theory, it should deter the disability insurer, but because it's two different tests, insurance companies like to make it seem like they are independent from what's happening from CPP disability. But in fact, the two you can see are quite related and the tests I think are compelling. With that, we'll take a short break back into some more emails and actually we'll get a note from mydisabilityquestions.com. I did mention that website a couple of times. It's free and anonymous for you to use. Ask some questions and they will be answered uh, by one of tomorrow's team. You might even show up on a show a little later on. So so there you go. Do that. And anytime you can call 1-855-821-5900. Disability Law Show and more of it coming right up. Hang on. All right, we're back. A few minutes to go. Disability Law Show. Good to have you with us. You want to reach out to Tamara Gopian anytime. She is, uh, she's the one to call, man. With all matters, at least uh, give her a ring and have a chat. She's got a wonderful team behind her at the uh, at the firm. It's one 5900 And if you just go to disabilityrights.ca, the firm website, under the Knowledge Center tab, drop down media, you'll catch past radio shows and TV shows with Tamara involved in that uh, as well. Pretty much helping you across the country they can anywhere uh, outside of Quebec and you're uh, you're good to go. Yeah, mydisabilityquestions.com. Let's get to a question from there. I knew they'd come in. This one says, I've been receiving LTD payments for just under two years. I was recently informed by my insurance provider that my file has been transferred to the long duration team because they've deemed that my health condition prevents me from working at any occupation and that I will likely continue receiving LTD payments until age 65, which is great. My specific question is, can I take a brief, a brief trip abroad to visit my family? My doctor is perfectly okay with it. I've read over everything I got from the insurance company, and I found nothing that says anything about vacation or travel. Uh, I may be paranoid, but I don't want to ask my disability case manager about this because I feel I'll be opening the door to unnecessary and unwanted examination 
Am I wrong in thinking that no mention of travel restrictions in my LTD policy is sufficient for me to proceed worry-free with a short trip abroad for the purpose of visiting family? What do you think, Tamara? Ooh, good question. Really, really good question. Look, I think that having a healthy level of paranoia with a disability insurer is not the worst thing, okay? And, and I absolutely understand the hesitation here around, look, do I have to share this information with them? You know, what do I do in a circumstance like this? You know, I know I'm going to continue getting my disability benefits. What's described here is that this individual is on long duration. And we actually talked about this term before, John. It means that the insurance company is accepting that this individual's benefits will continue most likely until they are 65 years old. This doesn't mean they're not going to continue to adjudicate, though. It's just the level of adjudication involved in a long duration claim is actually a lot less. So they are no longer looking for opportunities to sort of provide rehab or get you back to work or having a dialogue around, look, the change of definition and so on. Now it's sort of more like a maintenance type uh, adjudication. They will touch points with the claimant maybe twice a year, maybe once a year, get an update, see how you're doing. If it's more of the same, it's fairly routine. They check, check off that box. The thing is though, with adjudication, there is some mutuality. The law says there's a mutual duty between the claimant and the insurer to cooperate with this effort to adjudicate. Yep. And this is where I think it's a challenge for individuals to say, look, I don't really want to share this information with the insurance company. I think starting off in a position like that can be difficult because play this out for me. What if the insurer comes into this information down the road and it wasn't shared with them? There was no context provided. If the, I can tell you, adjusters are cynical, and if they take the worst possible lens to it, they're going to say, well, you're trying to, to fool us, that you've got a higher level of function than what you've been telling us, and we don't feel like you're being forthright, and so we're going to cut off the claim on that basis. So I think that individuals, when they're listening, are thinking, how do I navigate the disability insurer? Look, yes, I absolutely understand that they come at it with a certain bias. I do too. It's human nature. Mm -hmm. By the same yep. token... You know, there's nothing to hide, right? If you are being put in this long duration situation and the doctor is endorsing, look, you should go and, and travel and see your family, that's going to be helpful for your health, then by all means, do it. I think the key here about whether or not travel is okay or not okay is the policy, though. And John, you can't really get the policy. You've got to ask, you know, the insurance company for it or ask your uh, employer for a copy of it. And you really want to check to see what it says in there because some policies say if you're out of Canada for more than an X period of time, sometimes it's even two months or two weeks, you're not entitled to benefits for any period where you are not in the place where you are residing and the place wow. where we think you should be. Yeah. So again, you wouldn't know this though if you sort of hide this information from your adjuster, right? So again, I cannot emphasize this enough. Open and honesty is important. I absolutely understand and appreciate the paranoia, but if you know, you've know you got these ongoing restrictions and limitations and you've got this policy that's there, you want to access that, make sure you know, you're clear to go and just sort of say it fairly routinely to your adjuster or provide a medical note saying, hey, you know, the doctor's endorsed that I can take this travel. This is the purpose of the trip and I'm going to go and I, you know, I trust this isn't going to be an issue. And once you get the green light from the insurance company, no problem. It's a no, never mind. I just don't like the idea of hiding this information regardless, because if it does come out down, down the road, the insurer may then be more suspicious than it was warranted 
of your claim and your profile, and they're going to be a greater scrutiny down the road than if they would have been otherwise had you just been open and honest with them right from the start. Always great information. Yeah, why bother? Just be uh, just be forthright from the from the get go. It'll alleviate any uh, any problems for sure moving forward. Christine, thank you. We'll get to this email. I think we got enough time. Christine says, "Hey, tomorrow we're for a large financial institution." I've had no work issues at all for years. Earlier this year, my team and I got an email announcing that we were getting a new manager. He happened uh, to be my boss in another organization years ago who harassed and bullied me to the point where I had to quit. When I heard that I had to work for him again, it triggered a mental breakdown and my doctor put me off work. I got a few months of short-term disability benefits, but was cut off because the insurance company said it was a workplace issue. I'm under treatment for PTSD, and I have other physical uh, health issues that are being investigated. My doctor supports that I stay off work and suggested that I get some advice on whether I have a case. What do you think? Really good question, Christine. And, and it actually brings me back to what I started off at the top of the show talking about, where you've got a workplace setting that triggers a mental health condition that then puts you off work. And I think that really what's important here is the medical information. I think that when there are ongoing health issues, symptoms, functional limitations that exist, even though Christine's been out of the workplace setting, and if those limitations support that she is totally disabled and unable to work in this organization as a result of her health, not the issues at work, but her health itself, I do think that is a basis for disability benefits to absolutely be approved and paid. And so if all of the medical information, John says, it's all related to fear of working for this boss, fear of going to this work setting, this and that, I think you're going to get some resistance, unfortunately, from the insurance company who's going to say, do your same job at another financial institution. There's a whole lack of them here. So just go go down the street kind of thing. I don't like that answer, though. And I think in Christine's situation, there's some clearly some legitimacy to what's happening because she's now received the post-traumatic stress disorder, this PTSD diagnosis. And so this diagnosis doesn't happen in a vacuum, John. There's a very clear criteria. And so it's almost like spoon-feeding this information to the disability insurer. You want the doctor to really break it down, provide the support and the symptoms and the details around why this diagnosis was made, what the treatment plan is, what the prognosis and diagnosis is. Because when you've got this solid medical supporting the, the claim, it's much harder for the disability insurer to turn around and say, this is all a workplace issue. I hate to give them that pass because it's not right. It's not fair, especially when you've got legitimate disability issue like Christine does. And with that, we're going to wrap it up for another show. Appreciate all your contribution, whether it was through email, which is help at disabilityrights.ca or mydisabilityquestions.com. You can use both those resources going forward anytime you would like to reach out to Tamar and her team at the firm. Use the phone number 2-1-855-821-5900. And don't forget about ltdfaq.ca. Short, concise memos on LTD and topics underneath each uh, drop-down menu. No legal speak, just simple English. You can use that anonymously anytime you like. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.